Welcome to Critical Thinking Required, hosted by LBW. Our goal is simple. We want to challenge you to think differently about finance and business. Join us and start the journey today. Welcome to Critical Thinking Required. You're with your hosts, myself, Tim Bickmore, and my two colleagues, Dan Weiss and Nathaniel Leach. And we have a guest on our uh, podcast today, Dr. Ross Goldberg. Dr. Ross Goldberg is an MD, FACS, is the Specialty Ambulatory Medical Director and Vice Chairman of the Department of Surgery at Valley Weiss Health. He is an Associate Professor of Surgery at both Creighton University School of Medicine and the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. He's a board certified general surgeon who focuses on open and minimally invasive techniques treating diseases of the gastrointestinal tract, which includes treating cancer of the esophagus, stomach, liver, and pancreas. He has been active in organized medicine for the past 20 years and is currently the president of the Arizona Medical Association, as well as a member of the Board of Governors for both the American College of Surgeons and the Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons. So thank you, uh, Ross. We really appreciate you having us on today. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Ross is a friend, and uh, him and I were just catching up over the weekend. Um, on Sunday, he mentioned to me that an issue that we're seeing among this time of COVID-19 is that people are evaluating the health impact and the economic impact, and they're seeing them as somewhat, as somewhat uh, independent from one another, but they really aren't. And that's a comment that you made to me that uh, stuck with me. I, I think that that is very true. Could you elaborate a little bit more as to, as to how dependent really those two concepts are? Sure. Um, I think one of the things that's funny, you hear the debate about to open, not to open, um, and there's the public health side arguing, saying, well, we have to choose between public health and the economy. And I don't see that as we're choosing an either or. I think they are really intertwined on a lot of levels. And you can look at it from a variety of ways. Let's start with the, the person, right? So health is obviously important. You want to maintain health. But part of your health, it's not just physical health. It's your mental health. And honestly, your economic well-being plays into your mental and your physical health. Um, people are losing their jobs. They're losing their health insurance. They're losing access to care. So if they don't have the ability to pay for their own health insurance and have health access, you know, that's going to have a detrimental effect. That's a big fight we've always had. I work at a safety net hospital, so I have a lot of Medicaid patients and self-insure and self-pay patients, I should say. It's difficult for them to access care. So now we're adding to that population, of, and that's going to cause a stress on our healthcare system, but that's directly tied to the economic well-being of our patients. And not only that, their mental well-being. I don't know anyone who's like, happy and in a frame of mind if all of a sudden they're losing their job, they're losing their source of income, there's this kind of instability brought into their life. So just from a person to person level, there's a lot of stress. I get it. I see it all over the place. You hear about it. Millions of people are losing their jobs because of this, because we're trying to keep people safe. So it's where is that balance? And it's not just limited to you know the outside world. Healthcare is drastically been affected by this. So I don't remember the study. But it's been proven, and as a general surgeon, I'm acutely aware of this, that especially the rural hospitals, if you don't have a general surgeon there practicing and doing operations, the hospital will go under because a surgery and operations are a source of revenue for the institution. They're a large source of revenue, um, even to keep it afloat. So if you're not doing elective surgeries, which many of us have not been doing for four, five, six, seven weeks, 
that's a big hit to the hospital. Hospital needs to stay afloat. It is not cheap to run a hospital. Um, you know, people talk about the cost of healthcare, and trust me, we can spend weeks discussing that in a variety of ways. I think you're seeing, though, when the economy has a hit, it's hitting the healthcare system in multiple ways. In my role as the president of ARMA, the Arizona Medical Association, you know, I represent over 4,000 physicians. And that's all the range from family practice to, you know, I'm an employed physician, so I've been a little sheltered, not completely, but a little, compared to some of my colleagues who are now not seeing any patients because no one wants to see them or it's all telemedicine, so their reimbursement's lower. They can't afford to keep their staff. They can't afford to pay their staff or pay for the staff's insurance. Again, another downstream. So you're seeing it hit on multiple levels. This whole concept of we got to restart the economy or choose between public health just doesn't make sense to me because like, like anything in the body, it's all connected. Like when I operate on someone's gallbladder, I, yes, I'm taking out their gallbladder, but I'm operating on a whole human being. Like if there's other problems or other issues with the body, that's going to affect my operation. Plus, if I do something, it's going to affect the rest of the body. This idea that we can silo these issues and talk about them, I think is leading us down false pathways. We have to really kind of look at the whole system to really address it. Ross, you know, you, you mentioned in there too that um, this concept of this is a revenue source, performing elective surgeries for, for these facilities. We've seen a lot for people that we know and clients, dentists, that, that their private practices can't can't operate um, now. And, uh, you know, even some of the ER uh, doctors that we work with where ERs are perhaps maybe actually seeing what they should see for people and are not being used as a primary care facility, but then their hours are being caught and that's affecting them. I know that with your role, your multiple roles here, that funding is something that you get involved in. How, what is, what is that picture going to look like? How do these facilities stay funded and how do these these um, these doctors keep keep afloat it's it's a good question it's actually you brought up one point i smiled a little bit it is true it's amazing how all of a sudden we reduced the number of tests and maybe things we didn't need to thoroughly review there's always been that balance of what is what is the right amount of testing or interventions that we can do and need to do are we overdoing it at times because we're just being cautious for a variety of reasons um, when you're talking about the financial well-being, I think it really depends on what you're talking about. Again, it's not a one-size-fit-all. Are you talking about the small independent uh, practice who's really a small business? And that's what people forget is they truly are a small business. It's, it's you know, the business of healthcare is a very interesting, convoluted, complicated thing because the product that we are producing, and I hate putting it in those terms, like I hate using business terms in medicine because these are human beings. This is care I'm providing, but I also live in reality and that we need to be able to have a source of funding to be able to do what we need to do. So it's where that balance is. It's, there's always a, a conflict between business and the science and art, if you will, because you've got to find that balance. So for the private practice docs, is it through these loans that are available through the government? Is it, are there ways that we can find, like I've been on the phone with insurance companies and we've negotiated with them, or like CMS, the Centers for Medicaid, Medicare and Medicaid Services, they've talked about doing these advanced payment models where they take a kind of a, a, a snapshot of what you charged last year and give you a percentage now to kind of make up for the fact that you would be seeing these patients or you're not. Then look at a hospital, the different type of hospitals, right? You've got your non-for-profit, your for-profit. Um, a lot say they're just non-for-profit, which, you know, again, that's a whole nother conversation. And then there's these large conglomerates and versus, you know, like, again, I work at a safety institution, you know, so we have, uh, we are slated with a different percentage. We do get, um, so we are a public health care district here in Maricopa County. 
So there's a small percentage of everyone's real estate tax that goes towards our funding. Um, what's, how, what's how they do in other state, you know, so other county hospitals as well, or different revenue streams in the government. But it all depends what they're doing. Like look at Mayo Clinic, right? And I did some training at one of the, the sister sites at Mayo in Florida. Mayo Clinic is, is a well-known name. It is a massive institution, but you know, they do a lot of complex elective stuff. And I think one term people get confused is what does elective mean? Elective just means that you're something you're scheduling to do. Um, the urgency medically, if it's cancer, is still an elective surgery. If you're in the hospital and admitted or coming through the emergency room, that's an urgent or emergent case. Elective in its most simple form is just that you are planning from an outside body to go into the hospital. So they do a lot of elective surgery, important surgery, but if that, if that gets cut off, that's their main source. Now all of a sudden, what do they do? You know, it's, it's a new system they've never been at. Like, you know, it's rare to hear people that are not gonna go to these top-notch institutions. But right now, some are blocking because you can't do it. We've got to protect the people in the hospital. And then all of a sudden, now you're having a downstream effect of financial issues. And now more people are losing their jobs in the healthcare industry because the hospitals can't afford them. They're furloughing people. They're cutting salaries. They are, you know, I'm very fortunate that we've tried very hard to not cut salaries, but we're all been, you know, considering to take our vacation days now so that when the surge of patients that we have to do, like there's a backlog of patients that we have not operated on that we've been postponing, we have to catch up. They haven't gone away and new patients haven't stopped coming. So if in the last, the first three weeks that we, we kind of held off an elective surgery, we have 60 cases that are ready to go. That hasn't stopped the 300 referrals that I've gotten the last month that need to follow. So we need to put them everywhere and operate. So now we're going to go from zero to a thousand. And that's another stress that we don't know Do we have the resources to handle. So it's a different type of surge. So all of these plays are all interacting and depending on what hospital system you're at or where you are, how do you negotiate all that? So, which is interesting because, you know, you're, you know, Ross, you're talking a lot about kind of the, like you said, the business economics of a healthcare system, which is convoluted as I'll get out. How do you see the industry changing moving forward? Like you mentioned earlier on telehealth, right? Are we going to see more tech companies popping up? But then I know that tech companies, you have HIPAA regulations. It's a lot difficult to transfer data. Um, I'm fortunate to have a mother who works in the health tech uh, world and it's convoluted. And then in addition to privatization, right? A lot of conversation of privatization of, of, medica of, of medical services. But if you have everything private in today's world, let's say COVID-19 comes back around, are they going to go under and who's going to back them for the bankruptcies? Are we going to have to bail them out with government money anyways? It's like, what are your thoughts on how this is going to shift the overall thought process um, of the healthcare industry? just in general, from a business standpoint? Are we gonna well, go more public, more private? Well, I'd say, I would say this, and I, I don't say this as, you know, I think most would agree that the healthcare system that we had before this is not gonna be the same one that comes out after this. It's, it's been dramatically changed already. And the first one, let's just start with telehealth. Um, telehealth has been something we've all talked about in the you know, healthcare world. It's, we even have bills in Arizona talking about it. We've been kind of dipping our toe in it. And again, I'm gonna use what I know, so I'll use my institution. My institution, I know my chief medical information officer at the hospital has wanted to do telehealth for years. Well, then this hit. And we went from like zero visits to we're over 10,000 visits only a couple of, visit, a couple of weeks of telehealth. And it's with a system, it's a platform we have. Um, the nice thing is right now, it's kind of a free for all with reimbursement. So if you think about it, when it just to, and not to get everyone too in the weeds here, when I see a patient in the clinic, you know, there's, some, there's a billing coding system I use depending on 
how much time I spent seeing the patient, plus a history and getting a physical on them, right? Well, I can't examine you through the phone or through the video. So, you know, theoretically you're like, well, you should get paid less for doing a telemedicine visit. You're doing less. You're not using a facility. So there's no facility fee theoretically, or there's no charge for that, but there's other charges that come in. But right now that everyone realizes that we're kind of forced into doing this. So everyone's getting paid the same rate as if you were standing in front of me in my office and I was examining you. That's not going to continue. Um, I, I appreciate the goodwill of insurance companies, but uh, that's kind of, you know, that sentence made no sense what I just said, the goodwill of an insurance company. Private insurance companies, you know, they have shareholders to, to answer to. You know, the federal government does not have an unlimited supply of money. They can't just give out money. So there needs to be a balance. So I'll tell you one thing we're already starting to talk about and I've asked for, and again, my role in leadership is to start thinking about what is it going to look like when we're not in this state, when people start pulling back. Everyone's very, every willing to jump in right now. We're in a pandemic. We're all in this together. This hopefully will not stay like this for the rest of our lives. So what is that new system going to look like? Patients like visiting their doctor from home. It's convenient. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to wait in a waiting room. You can, if you're waiting, you can watch TV or do something else while you're home. Um, some patients, unfortunately, have found them a little too comfortable uh, when they're at home. And I'm just going to leave it at that because the stories I've heard have been really interesting. I guess they forget there's a video screen sometimes. Um, so it, it's, it's, they enjoy that comfort level. So it's going to be a future. We're already having these discussions. What is our future state going to look like? That alone is going to change a huge part of the business. Now, as a surgeon, I'm going to have to examine you and I'm going to have to operate on you. Um, I do do robotic surgery, but we're not at the point where robotic surgery where I can operate from my house and you go somewhere and the robot comes and attaches. I mean, if you go to the history of the robotic platform that came out of the military for that very concept of doing battlefield surgery with not having the surgeon on the battlefield, because if you lose your surgeon that during a battle, that's probably not a good thing. Not good to lose anyone. I mean, don't get me wrong. But if you only have one surgeon for an entire battalion and you lose that surgeon, you're kind of like, you're kind of up, you know what, without a paddle. So that concept exists, but we don't do telesurgery. I mean, that we can't do it right now. We don't have the technology's not there yet. But where's all this going to fit in? We have had a decrease of visits to the emergency room. I like the fact that people aren't using the emergency room as their primary care doctor. They shouldn't. They should go to their primary care doctor. So the business side is, is interesting. Another point for the, the, the private, uh, private versus uh, public, and I, I know I'm jumping around a little bit. One thing we've seen a lot of recently are these venture capital firms buying up these large groups, specifically like you look at specialties like anesthesia, emergency room medicine. They're buying these large groups. Well, I think they pretty much took it on the chin right now for what's going on. So the question is, A, is it worth for them jumping in? And are they going to back out? And what happens to those groups? So for those partners in those groups, when they sold their practice, they did well. The junior members who had no stake didn't get anything. And now they're an employee who's kind of like dictating things. And by the way, they're cutting their salaries right now because they're losing money. But what are those venture capital firms going to do now? And I'm not, I don't have any knowledge about their details. I just know it's something that's happening within, business, uh, within the business of medicine. So you have all these different players who are kind of scrambling for scraps right now because we don't know where everything's coming. Now, as we turn elective surgeries back on, that will help at least some of the stream in. But again, I don't know how long it's going to last. There is significant concern that obviously by opening up now, we could cause an increase. And an increase in COVID patients would mean a decrease of other things that we can do in the hospital. So it's a big play. And I will tell you right now, for elective surgeries, we are testing everyone pre-op. It is required in our state. A lot of people agree that's a requirement needs to happen. 
So I don't know what the impact is going to be yet. It, there's a lot of unknowns, which, you know, as a surgeon, that's not an ideal place for me to work. Um, I like to have a plan and then have 14 more plans after that. Any blind spots is already kind of, you know, anxiety inducing. And we've got some major blind spots that we just don't know because we can't predict right now what's going to happen. So it sounds like we're dropping a, a pebble in the pond, <laughs> letting the ripple effect happen. It, just kind of see how it shakes out in a sense. It's just at some point, I think it's interesting is to go back though to the social distancing issue is that we're not creatures who like being isolated. Um, you know, Dan and I were talking over the weekend. I, someone shared a very interesting article with me. You know, we've all become the Zoom people, right? We've all got these Zoom meetings, but actually video meetings like this are far more taxing than a face-to-face -face conversation, right? All we're seeing right now is we're seeing our shoulders and up. I have no idea what your lower body's doing. I can't tell the body language from that. And even if you didn't realize you're doing it, you take a lot of social cues from that. It's a way to understand what's going on. Maybe someone's like not paying attention so you can kind of drift a little bit. Like we all have all done it in meetings, right? I don't know anyone who says, well, I've paid attention 100% all the time in every meeting. Um, that's probably impossible if I were to guess. You know, especially nowadays when our attention span is so small, I mean, I honestly, we're like the 10 second adult group now. Like it really is, you know, we see a squirrel, we get distracted. So doing it with Zoom where you can't pay attention, where you cannot pay attention, you're actually using more energy and more focus. So if you do 12 hours of Zoom meetings, you're exhausted afterwards. And then you really, you've interacted with people, but you've lost that physical touch. You know, I at least am fortunate enough that I can go to the hospital where I can interact with human beings. Yes, I'm in a mask. Yes, I'm, wearing, I'm in protective gear, but I'm having physical contact. Um, it's amazing. I ask people who don't have that right now what that's like for them. It's taxing mentally. There's the mental aspect again. So at some point, we have to be able to, to do that. So I don't have a good answer of you know when to do this or how. I think someone brought up a good point that other countries have different ways of doing it, right? It doesn't like we have to choose either or. Um, if we want to be the nation that tests everyone crazy, which I think is a great idea, then you can figure out which populations may need to not go out as much as others. Um, it's just what, what approach we want to have to allow people to kind of go back and have a little normalcy in their life. Because we need that. We're not going to do well staying like this. We are not designed for this. I worry about the mental health of everyone. I mean, you're seeing it already. People are lashing out at this. They can't take it anymore. And there's only so much TV, you know, there's so much Tiger King you can watch over and over again without, you know, and then you can't take it anymore, right? So it's, you've got to have that interaction, you know, and that's really playing into it as well. That's why this is so complex. It's, if you look back from an epidemiologic standpoint, it's fascinating, but it's, it's, we don't have good answers because it's so complicated. There's no way to, to describe it and explain it so simply. Ross, uh, we talked a little bit about this. With this week, with the number of states now reopening more and more functions, in your perspective, what do you think we should see as an expectation to come out of those moves as of this week? More cases, more hospitalizations. Uh, not right now. Give it a few-week lag. Um, I hope I am wrong. Like, I pray that I am wrong and that everyone's fine. Um, so far, what we have seen, that has not been the case. Uh, I don't think we've got a handle enough where we can say we know where everything is. Uh, I know people have been focusing on this antibody test. I know there's a lot of false ones out there. The question is, what does it mean? Honestly, what an antibody test means right now is that you've been exposed to this virus. That's pretty much all it can tell you. But that's an important piece of information too, right? 
because you're hearing these little rumors coming out of these tests that are not being, or these studies that aren't being validated yet, that the number of people who've been exposed is significantly higher than those than we realize. Um, I've heard even the, the craziest number, and I saw it on CNN, so that's why I'm going to blame them. Uh, there was one study that was not validated or peer reviewed yet from LA County, I think, where they said it was 55 times higher than what they thought. So if they're reporting a couple thousand cases and they're actually saying it's 55 times higher, now you're talking about 400,000 people that have been exposed. So if we've all been exposed and the majority of us are okay, the question is, well, all right, is the mortality curve lower? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? What does it mean? Again, we're still so early into this. You know, we've known about this, this disease for the most part of the calendar year. It's May 5th. You know, they reference people like Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci remembering the HIV epidemic. This is not the same as HIV, but think about those early few months. They had no idea what was going on, right? So you kind of throw everything at it. You try to figure out what's going on. And as you get better data, you can better uh, understand what's going on. Our data just isn't complex enough or complete enough to give us a better understanding. We're piecing it together and everyone's chipping in and it's gotten a lot better. I mean, we're a lot better than we were a month ago and a month before that, but it doesn't mean we're done. But again, I go back to the fact that people can't take being in isolation for months and months. That's not healthy either. And at some point, you know, just from a mental standpoint, you're going to lash out because you've got to, you know, go outside and see another human being and not watch a video screen. So it's tricky. I worry about a surge. They're kind of, well, the models have already started to, to take that in. I think one model's already doubled the death rate for the country just from because the states have started to open this week. Look, we all hope models are wrong, right? I've had models tell me that Arizona surged April 10th and then it switched to May 1st and then it went to April 22nd, then to June, then I have no idea. And that was like all within a three-week period. Our surge numbers changed all over the place because we're reacting and we're trying to, you know, flatten that curve. Remember, flattening the curve isn't getting rid of cases. It's just spreading them out over a longer distance so that our system can handle the inflow of patients. So I don't know. I'd like to thank Ross again for joining us for part one of our healthcare podcast on critical thinking required. Please join us for our next podcast where we talk to Ross again in part two. Ross will discuss, is the cure worse than the disease? And can we reach herd immunity? And what does that look like? What does that mean? He also talks about the healthcare industry and how it can change and how it needs to change and how COVID-19 is forcing some of that change and what it takes to see changes within that industry. And then we ask, can tech be the solution? Um, again, please be sure to listen to our next podcast as we continue our discussion of the healthcare industry. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to start your journey of thinking differently and listening to LBW talk about stuff they love. Until next time. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual on any specific security, on any specific broker-dealer or custodian. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments, broker, dealer, or custodian may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. 
All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinion of Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management, LLC. Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management, LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management, LLC and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No advice may be rendered by Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management, LLC unless a client service agreement is in place.